Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Are you ready for the Sunday sermon on Friday night? Right? I guess it's the Sabbath or something. Um, thank you so much for coming out tonight. We are so thrilled uh, that you're here, and we're hoping that this uh, tonight and tomorrow morning can just be a blessing to you. Stand on the stage. I am pretty short. Donald. Donald, Donald, Donald. So, you know what? Just a couple of things tonight. I'm going to sit in the front row, but I think maybe that's why no one else is. Um, um, to be a member at Sovereign Grace Church, uh, you do not have to have a, a specific uh, eschatological view, except that you believe that Jesus is coming again. That's, that's what we all agree on and, and need. Um, Warren Wiersbe is a guy that, that um, I've read, he's written a ton of little commentaries, and I loved what he said uh, one, day, uh, one day. He said, you know, he's an, he was an older pastor before he died. He said, I've, I've, lis- I've gone back to listen to my sermons from Revelation and on the second coming of Jesus. And he said, you know what? You know how I sounded? You would have thought I was on the organizing committee for Christ to come again. And he said, now that I'm an older pastor and I've studied more, he said, I want you to know I've resigned from the organizing committee and I only now want to be on the welcoming committee. Well, I think that's the heart that God loves is that we want to see Jesus come again and that we want to be faithful in the great commission and the great commandment until he does. Our hope with tonight is you're going you're gonna to hear um, the variety of views uh, that can be held uh, about the second coming of Christ. Um, you're going to hear where I stand. I'm going to share with you a little bit tomorrow where I stand. You'll hear where Alan stands. So we'll be doing the teaching over this weekend. Um, uh, but I just want you to feel like we're equipping you to know what you would believe. Um, not, not to sway you about what to believe, uh, because this is, this is not a core essential doctrine for the fellowship of the saints. Um, but to expect his return, we all should want that. Amen. So can we pray tonight? And I'll turn it over to Alan, and he's going to kick us off. Heavenly Father, we sure love you, and uh, we are so thankful. We, we are so thankful. Where would we be? if you had not sent your son Jesus the first time. We'd still be dead in our sin. We would be hopeless. We would have no hope in this world, only the fearful expectation of righteous judgment. We're so thankful, Jesus, for what you've done at the cross and the resurrection, and just as thankful as we are that you came the first time. Oh, how we long for you to come again. God, I'm so tired of sinning against you. And it will be so wonderful to no longer sin against you, but to just fully worship you. So, Lord, would you use this weekend to help us grow in our understanding of Scripture, in our study of Scripture? Uh, Lord, would you use this Scripture to stir our hearts in longing for the second coming and to be more bold in sharing the gospel uh, with the motivation of Jesus coming again. 
we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, good to see everyone. How's this level? Is it too loud? Come down a little? Okay. How's that? All right. Good. Well, thanks for coming out on a Friday night and wanting to do this. Um, as Pastor Billy said, it, uh, it's important that we set this in the right context and um, with the right kind of weight. And um, let me get going here. I'm going to see if I can do this. Am I up there? Okay. So how do you do this? Let's see. That. All right. Um, how do you mute it? <laughs> like, <laughs> pause the TV so it's not showing? Just stop it? I'll just stop it. Okay. All right. All right. Good. Sorry, guys. Just give me a minute to figure this out. Now I can't find all those notes, Eric. So if I'm not screencasting, I'm not going to have the notes on here. Yeah, I'll, I'll just pull it up right here. Yeah. I don't want the... Um, okay. <laughs> All right. Well, um, I, so I would like for this to be interactive. Um, so as we go through, ask questions, raise your hand. Uh, we do have a mic that we'll pass around. Uh, some folks, especially folks with little kids, are watching from home, so they couldn't come. So they would love to hear your question as well. Um, we're looking into getting this uh, thing that you throw across the room. It's soft, and it, and it has a microphone in it, so we could, like, chunk it to each other, and then you ask your question. So, uh, but in the meantime, please don't throw the mic. But we do have somebody who's going to run around. I think Aiden's going to do it and uh, pass the mic around. So definitely want you to jump in. Because it's going to be interactive and we only have tonight and tomorrow morning, um, we are not going to be taking a deep dive on any of this kind of stuff. It's just going to be a lot of flyover. Here's um, some basic information. And then um, I'll kind of let your interaction and your questions drive and determine how far we go into things. So um, I want to start with just some preliminary comments, which Pastor Billy uh, alluded to, and just where we place the subject of eschatology. Eschatology being the study of last things, last times. Um, so it's important, we're going to talk about views and positions and things like that, but that whole conversation has to fall in a certain area of our minds that is different than, say, the Trinity or uh, the deity of Christ or justification by faith. So I kind of think of it like this. We have um, at the center of the circle, you have just orthodox core things of Christianity, things that many Christians um, agree on. Uh, to, to be a Christian, you know, you need to like believe in these things. Um, justification by faith and uh, the, the authority of scripture, all those things are at the center circle of scripture. Um, and then there's sort of this next layer out of what we would call like 
secondary, but by, by secondary we don't mean unimportant or trivial or anything like that. Um, still important things, but, but things that if one doesn't agree on, it's not like they can't be a Christian. So we would put things in this category like um, election. You know, there are many people who don't believe in the doctrine of election or have other views of the sovereignty of God. Um, and yet, uh, as important as those things are, it's kind of a, a layer out from some just orthodox core Christian beliefs. Um, also kind of in this, in this layer is things that we would put, just distinctions that we have a, as a church. Um, and I guess you could say, like, if all of this in one sense is core, I mean, you don't want to get too technical with the definitions, but another, another layer there would be um, some of our values, our shared values as a sovereign grace church. So what we believe about gifts of the Spirit, that we believe the gifts of the Spirit, activity of the Holy Spirit, is still happening today and that the gifts are available to the church. Gifts as biblically defined, not by culturally or, um, you know, his church history defined or something like that, but as biblically defined. Gifts of the Spirit, uh, modes of baptism. Do we sprinkle, pour, dunk? You know, what do we, what do, we do? Um, church polity. Do, we, do the people in the church vote? Do the elders lead the church? Is there some combination of those things? Um, men and women's roles in the church and uh, what degree of authority um, each of those may have. So those are distinctions that are key to who we are and those are part of our seven shared values as Sovereign Grace Churches. Um, but all, all of those things kind of exist tightly in this, in this other layer. You know, we might say Sovereign Grace, uh, seven shared values, you know. So in other words, Mark Dever, who doesn't believe in, the seven, in one of the seven shared values, we still is, believe is a wonderful Christian and faithful Bible teacher, as is John MacArthur, who wouldn't believe in some of our seven shared, you know. So we're, we're defining these things carefully and recognizing that um, as we move out, things that may be valuable to us, that we hold with conviction, that are important, um, are not always weighted the same as something like, is, was Jesus really God? Okay, so, uh, so where, where would we place eschatology? Well, uh, we would say eschatology is yet another layer um, far removed <laughs> on this outside. Hard to talk and write. Eschatology, okay. So we have this other one. And if we wanted to get even bigger, you could add a layer outside of that. Now, what do you think that, that would be? Things like wisdom issues, conscience issues. Romans 14 talks about how Christians can be faithfully following the Lord and, and land on different places on a particular issue, and, uh, and that that Christian should go with that conscience decision, and this Christian should go with this conscience decision, and it doesn't mean that one of them is being unfaithful and the other is not. There's, there's this category that the Bible creates for God has given you the gift of conscience and follow that, and that's a good thing. Um, wisdom issues, uh, preference issues, you know, musical style, how often we take communion. Um, in, in some categories, things like, uh, you know, depending on how you look at all these things, everything could be uh, taken in a sinful way. So we're not, we're not saying sinfully looking at some of these things. Um, 
but within the allowable teachings of the Bible, you know, how do we view some of these things? Media, um, you know, like what rating of movie you watch or what kind of music you listen to. Um, that's going to look different for different people. Uh, dress, you know, should Christians have tattoos? Should we read Harry Potter? Should we partake of alcohol in small amounts? How should we school our children? You know, like all of those things would exist in yet another layer. In other words, Christians can arrive at, at different things there and yet still be very tight and close in fellowship. So as, as we move out from the circle, um, we're implying that the degree of biblical clarity on something may lessen. So, you know, we hold the, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit very strongly. We believe the Bible teaches it. We, we hold that as a, as a conviction, but we recognize that John MacArthur, for instance, lands in a different place there, and he believes that's what the Bible teaches. And so, um, you know, we recognize that not everybody agrees on, on certain things. But that doesn't mean that um, it's less important or that we hold it because it's on the outside, we should hold it with less conviction. But what I would say is it should make us less dogmatic about our position. Dogmatic in the sense of it can't be any other way and anybody who doesn't agree with us is obviously wrong and doesn't believe their Bible and doesn't know how to read it. Um, the further out we get from the circle, we just should be careful about that and recognize that wonderful Bible-believing, faithful Christians who've studied God's word may land at a different place than we do um, on eschatology. And um, the, the reason that that's really important is because if we don't do that, what can happen is that we can elevate a secondary or tertiary issue to the level of importance as if it's something core, as if it's so important, like it's the Trinity, like it's the deity of Christ. And the problem with that, of course, if we do that, then the other way to view that is we actually lowered the core doctrine and made it actually not quite as important, you know, kind of on the level of eschatology, to say it sarcastically. Um, so it's dangerous. We, we don't want to elevate our, as we move out from this circle, elevate our views and positions as if they were core. And we've got to be careful to do that. Because, after all, um, is what the Bible teaches about the Trinity equal in clarity and equal in importance to what the Bible teaches about eschatology? No, <laughs> it's not. Um, so, tertiary, I would say, or dependent, one of those lines should be like a dotted line. Um, that said, as Pastor Billy mentioned, we, uh, he and I do have a, a position on eschatology that will come through. Um, and it, it being tertiary, or as we say, other, other views are welcome. It doesn't mean we lack confidence on where we stand, um, but we all want to learn to hold third-level, fourth-level issues um, with confidence without carrying those views as if they're closer to the center than they really are. Um, so where I want to begin tonight is giving you just a quick flyover of some of these views, and I hope to do this um, accurately and respectfully, and if any of you uh, if I'm representing a view that you hold and um, you, you've studied that view and you know that, well, actually, uh, premillennialists actually believe, you know, something like that, throw that out there. Um, because there's, there's a lot of different shades of each of these that we're going to be talking about. So um, if, you, if you believe that, if you used to believe that or something like that, and um, I'm not accurately and fairly representing, uh, I'd, I'd want to know that. So. All right, so 
the, the, the way we've arranged the tonight and tomorrow is along this idea of millennium. So in, when it comes to eschatology, that's kind of the, how things are grouped. So you have three different views of the millennium. And we'll explain what the millennium is, one of them being pre-millennium, um, another one being post-millennium, and another one being amillennial, millennium, amillennium. So what are those? So millennium is a word that, that means thousand years. So where do we get that? So if you have your Bible, let's look at Revelation 20. And uh, in Revelation 20, we see we see this phrase referred to. And as soon as we talk about the millennium, we're asking the question also, what about the return of Christ? Um, what about Israel? What about the future resurrection of believers? Um, what about judgment? What about, and mostly, what about this millennium? And uh, tribulation, what is it? What do these things mean? So let's, let's look in Revelation 20. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent. Now what, when it says ancient serpent, what is that alluding to? And how do we know that? Genesis, Genesis what? Genesis 3. Good job, y'all. Um, Genesis 3, yeah, when that's the serpent that came. And of course, the promise was given in that first announcement of the gospel that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And so here we see it full circle. He's, the dragon's being described as that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. So we have a thousand years referenced twice there. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the, the authority to judge was committed. And I also saw the, the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their numbers like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth, and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Okay. So, let's start with that. And, uh, and I'm going to give you, try to do like 10 minutes on just the overview of some of these different positions. Um, now, let me see if I can screencast this. All right, y'all tell me if this shows up behind me. Is it there yet? Okay. 
now. Okay. Good. Okay. All right. So in the, the category of pre-millennialism, um, when we say pre, this is a reference to the return of Christ. So if it's pre-millennial, where do you think the return of Christ happens? Before or after the millennium? Before the millennium. So in this diagram, um, and actually, uh, let me go to this one. In this diagram, the millennial age, which we just read, is a literal thousand years. Before that is when Christ comes, second coming. During this time, uh, Satan is bound. Believers rise at the second coming. They rule and reign with Jesus for a thousand years. At the end of which, as we just read, Satan's loosed and destroyed. Unbelievers rise and are judged. Believers are judged. And the millennial saints uh, rise and are judged. And then it ends with the final state, new heavens and the new earth. So, um, <laughs> so that speaker notes that I copied doesn't stay. It only attaches to one slide. So, okay. All right. Well, so in this view, there's a few things to note. And I can, if you want to talk some about this, I can explain, you know, where they get some of this from. But um, in, in the premillennial view, uh, during this thousand-year reign, so what happens is you have the Old Testament, Jesus comes, this begins a church age, um, historic pre-mill people are kind of divided on whether the tribulation is a literal seven years period just before the second coming of Christ or whether the whole church age is considered the tribulation. So uh, either way, you can take it either way. Um, at the end of this tribulation period, Jesus comes, Jesus comes down, the church meets him, they, they come into uh, the millennial age. So in the millennial age, um, Jesus comes into Jerusalem, takes his seat upon the throne, and reigns over the earth from Jerusalem. Believers are given positions of power and authority, um, finances and economy and uh, government and education and media and art and nature, and everything is renewed because Jesus is ruling the earth during this millennium. Now, it's not the new heavens and new earth. So pre-mill people recognize that in the Bible there's this tension. There's description of the present evil age that we all know so well. And there's heaven, which the Bible calls the new heaven and the new earth. But the Bible also talks about this middle category, which, which they're saying is the is a millennium, a period in which Christianity and the rule of Christ is spread throughout the, the earth, the the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will fill the earth and cover the earth as the water covers the seas, you know, a description of the, the coming millennium. But it's not heaven because, as, as we read, so what I'm doing right now is I'm presenting the, the pre-mill position, okay? Um, not stating or implying that I believe this or don't believe this. I'm trying to give it to you objectively, okay? So um, during this millennium, um, Satan is bound. If you look at verse 2, he's bound for a thousand years. He's thrown into the pit. It's shut. It's sealed over him. So he can't deceive the nations any longer. But at the end of that, he's let out for a period of time. And he roams around the earth. And he gathers people who were not believers. So the implication is that in the millennium, there are some people who are not believers. 
they're submitting to Christ because Christ is ruling from the throne in Jerusalem, but they're not, believe, they're not submitting to Christ willingly. They're, it's not in their hearts. They're, they're going along with it. And these are the ones that Satan goes and gathers and deceives and, um, and gathers them together for the final assault on the kingdom of God as represented by Jesus from the throne in Jerusalem. Gog and Magog, that's what that's a reference to. And it's all mounting and leading towards this, this battle, you know, the battle of Armageddon, the battle to end all battles. But of course, we know in verses 8 to 10 how that battle turns out. So Satan is allowed to go out, gathers everybody, um, all of his, his own. They, they come against Jesus and the Lamb, and they are defeated. Satan is thrown this time not into a pit, but into the lake of fire forever, into Verse, uh, verse 10, who had deceived him was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, and they're tormented day and night forever and ever. So this is the final overthrow of Satan, um, that this happens at the end of the millennial period. Um, so this is a position that's um, represented uh, by Wayne Grudem, um, a number of other folks as well. Uh, so... That's basically, that's a kind of a five-minute overview of historic pre-mill. Now, the next one I'll talk about is dispensational pre-mill, which is another shade of it, which, which basically introduces the idea of a rapture, so sort of a, a secret uh, coming of Christ before the second coming of Christ. We'll get to that next. Um, so any, like, dispensational pre-mill questions, hang on to that. But um, historic pre-mill, this is basically the, the overview. So... Any questions on this one? This is one way to interpret Revelation 20. So in, in both pre-mill views, historic and dispensational, the millennium is literal. Um, the, uh, it's a literal thousand years. That's the main key right there. The Bible says a thousand, so it's got to mean a thousand. And it says Satan is bound for a thousand years, so he's got to be bound. There, there can't be the influence of sin and evil and deception uh, during the millennium. So uh, it has to mean that. So any, any questions on that one? Okay. So maybe at this point you're thinking, okay, well, that sounds right. That sounds like the plainest reading of Scripture. So that's good. You know, if you, and if you believe that, that's fine. We're going to... Billy and I will be presenting, you know, some other views as well, some other things that we, we think should be considered as we read some of that. Okay, Delane. Uh, so where would they put the kingdom? Like on the top, on the, like the reign of Christ, the kingdom of God has come? Where would that be? Yeah, um, so I, they, I think they would still allow for an already not yet of the kingdom. So the, the kingdom is, is inaugurated at the coming of Christ, but it's not consummated until here. And then the, the full and final consummation happens in the final state, new heavens and new earth. Okay. So um, the kingdom is, in a pre-mill view, I would say the kingdom is much more future than it is present. It's a lot more to come than what has come. Okay. Um, so I think that's... The distinction there. Good question. Anybody else? Yep. Aiden, do you mind just like running it? <laughs> Be our runner for us. Thank you. 
So if it is true that the devil is bound for 1,000 years, um, and, and so in that time, uh, there's no influence of sin. It's this, this era of Christ on earth reigning. Um, and, and, and like you said, it, repeat what you said just now about there's, the devil has no influence to cause people to... Yeah, because he's, uh, he's bound for a thousand years, thrown into the pit, shut and sealed it over him. Right. Like the picture is, he is out of the picture for now. Right. And so then my, later that pit is released and he's allowed to come back. So then my question would yeah. be to that, um, then what about those people who are unwillingly submitting themselves to Jesus Christ? Um, because in, in essence, those people are in unbelief, right. which is sin right. at its greatest point. So if the enemy is bound for a thousand years, then to me it doesn't make sense. Yeah, so the presence, they would say the, the presence of fallenness in the world remains, but the demonic influence to persuade and gather and assault against God is what's missing. So the, the spiritual demonic influence and, and force is what's missing in that. And um, so I think that's, that's how that would how they would see that correct yeah yeah yep that that the dominant tone of the millennium is very it's a christianized world it is christians have taken over and uh and unbelievers submit to the church and to israel and to jesus reigning from jerusalem on the throne um many in this view uh believe that that jesus will reinstitute the sacrificial system of animals during the millennium um, and that that will be part of what takes place as he reigns from Jerusalem. So the temple is restored. First century temple Judaism gets restored in the millennium and um, the, the sacrificial system uh, returns. And I'll, that will make more sense. That's more on the dispensational side and that will make more sense when I explain dispensational because I see like, what? You know. Okay, let's move on to dispensation. Yeah, one more. Uh -huh. Yeah, please. Uh, so we, we might have read this, and I probably just skipped over it, but in the, so on your chart here at the very end, it says unbelievers rise and are judged, believers rise and are judged, and then the millennial saints rise and are judged. So is there a separate judgment for unbelievers and believers, and then the millennial saints? Is, is, are those separate? Yeah, so they would be uh, the same temporally in, in time. They would be the same. But um, for believers and for millennial saints, it would be a judgment of works. So this is where each one receives according to his works. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3, what is built on wood, hay, and stubble is burned up by fire. What's built on gold, silver, and precious stones is reserved. There's a, a judgment of believers, but it's never a judgment of condemnation. It's a judgment of purification of the Lord allowing us to see all of the ways we have fallen short and rewarding believers um, for all of the ways that they were faithful to him. So they're all judged at the same time. Yeah, it's a final, it's a final judgment. There is a, uh, in a sense, a judgment that takes place here. Um, some people have even talked about three judgments, but that's kind of getting... There's just a lot of like splintered views of, of how to take some of this. So, yeah. Okay. Dispensational pre-mill, the difference here 
is, is uh, that this is where the idea of, of a rapture comes into play. So um, rapture coming from uh, 1 Thessalonians, which one is it? 4, what is it? 417. 1 Thessalonians 417 is uh, kind of the text for that. 1 Thessalonians 4.17. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them. So that's referring to verse 16, that who, the dead in Christ. will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Um, so in a dispensational view, so this would be like uh, Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins, you know, the Left Behind series would be, uh, a, a media-driven presentation of dispensational premillennialism, meaning church age, everybody's living their life, and boom, Christians are taken out. That begins what they call the Great Tribulation. So remember on historic, tribulation was question-marked, um, but on dispensational, the Great Tribulation is a fixed seven-year period, seven years. And that's coming from things in Daniel, some, mixed with some things in Revelation, seven years so church church gets taken out seven years of tribulation take place then the second coming happens then the thousand years and everything else is the same at, at once you get to the millennium in the dispensational view dispensational so what does that mean dispensational premillennialism comes from um, a certain hermeneutic a certain way of reading the bible and interpreting the bible called dispensationalism made popular earlier in, by Schofield Study Bible, Ryrie Study Bible, Dallas Theological Seminary. Um, and uh, those who would hold this view, J. Dwight, Pentecost, people like that. So under dispensationalism, the, the Lord deals with the church and, and his redemptive plan is, is developed and unfolded over time according to various dispensations, seven to be specific, seven dispensations. The point of redemptive history is to bring Israel to God, to, to redeem God's people for himself. Um, as, un, as history unfolded and it became clear that what was going on in the Old Testament was, was Israel's hardness of heart and rebellion against God, um, it's as though God put the pause, hit the pause button on Israel, not entirely, but from a majority standpoint, and instituted the church. And so the church in dispensational theology, um, even admittedly by dispensationalists, is, is a parenthesis, is a word that they've used. Um, it's, an, it's an afterthought. It's a second thought. It's, they, they, you know, some... People who are arguing against it would say, well, God, you're saying God changed his mind when things didn't work out with Israel and said, well, I guess it didn't work with Israel, so let's start the church. And a, dis a, a dispensationalist would say, no, that's a misrepresentation. Um, God instituted the church as a way to, to whet Israel's appetite for what could be, to show them that I am, my grace is going out if you would just turn and repent and believe. So the, the institution of the church is meant for the ultimate redemption and restoration of Israel in dispensationalism. And so we're living in this, in this church age. Um, and so the, the work in Israel has been kind of trickling along through the church age. 
So the church gets raptured out as a, as a testimony both against Israel and a testimony to call Israel back to God. To say, almost, here is what could have been. I, you know, Jesus, I long to gather you together as a hen gathers its chicks, but you were not willing. This is, the, this is God calling out to Israel, come back, turn to me, and they would not. And so he establishes the church. He rescues the church before this coming great tribulation. So what's the point of the tribulation here? The point of the tribulation here is for the, the redemption of Israel. It's giving the people of Israel, ethnic Israel, seven years to come back to God. The church is gone, um, but God will send witnesses to share the gospel with them. And the point of that tribulation is to, to gather Israel back to God. And at the second coming, believers rise and are judged. So at this point, this is where the church, which was, which was rescued out, gets grafted into Israel um, as, as the new Israel. Um, they're allowed in as a subset under a true ethnic Israel. So that's dispensational theology. So that's why dispensationalism um, lends well to a dispensational premillennial view. Um, set against a, a historic view, which, is, which would see... Uh, which would not so much see it that way with the, the ethnic Israel thing. Um, they, they would see it as, uh, as really, well, we'll get, into, we'll get into the specifics later. This is just supposed to be the flyover. Okay, so that's, the, that's a presentation of, pre, of dispensational pre and historic pre. Any questions on dispensational premillennialism? Yes, sir. It's more of an observation, I guess. Having come from that, uh, what I found was because Jesus is coming soon, you really don't need to teach your people because what's the point? They're going up to heaven and they'll know everything then. Mm. And uh, this was a very prevalent view in the churches that I was in. Yeah, yeah thanks for sharing that. Um, as it, and it would be for us too. So we we grew up uh, believing that and thinking that. And um, even before the Left Behind series, you had the movie series that came out in the '70s, A Thief in the Night, um, which still gives me nightmares. Yeah. <laughs> that is a scary series. Um, but I, in, in defense of premillennialists, um, they would they would say that the doc, this doctrine rightly taught should not lead to that, even though we would recognize pastorally and functionally it can in, but in the same way as Calvinists they could say well Calvinism makes you say you don't have to evangelize and you don't have to pray and you don't have to read your Bible because God's going to do it anyway and we'd say no that's not what Calvinism says if, if you take it that way you're taking it the way wrong way so I think a pre-mill person would say it shouldn't make us apathetic and lazy and we're just going to be rescued out of here functionally does it sometimes have that effect yeah it, any, any good doctrine can do that um, so it's just, it's a, it's a vulnerability that those who hold that view should be aware of, that we can have this, um, we're going to be rescued out mentality, um, which would lead to 
which would lead to circling the wagons against the evil of culture and just kind of this disengagement, you know, which presses on as a church, what is to be our role in the world and in, in the culture today? And are we to disengage? Um, are we just waiting for a rescue before things get really bad, you know? Now, you know, if you, if you hear uh, 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 Wayne Grudem or John MacArthur talk about this, I mean, they would very much push back against that. And they, they would say, no, we, and, and Grudem does not believe in a rapture. He believe, he's a historic pre-mill. Um, he's not dispensational pre-mill. But, but either way, the, you know, they would very much push back on that and say it should not make us apathetic. It should not make us less evangelistic. It should make us... You know, and honestly, where we all agree is we know Jesus is coming back at an hour nobody knows. It could be tonight. It could be in a thousand years. Now, when we say coming back, we do not mean rapture. If a, if a dispensational pre-mill person says we're waiting for Jesus to come back, they might mean rapture. But all the other views, when we say that, we're meaning we're, we have in mind the second coming. One day, Jesus is coming back. We believe that with all of our hearts, and it could be any minute. And so we better get to work. We better have our lamps burning, you know, the parable Jesus told. We better be ready for this. Um, so that's a common ground that I think we can all find. Nobody should let their lamp be snuffed out. Um, we should have our lamps ready is what Jesus' point was. Yes. One more? Uh, is it Jan? Yeah. Oh, so dispensationalism gives is in the grand scope of things a relatively new view. Yeah, well, was there a, a belief in rapture prior to whenever that dispensationalism has kind of come? Yeah, out? I'm not aware of one and um, the amillennialists always bring that up. Well, it, it helps me no to get perspective because as a as a relatively yeah. new believer watching A Thief in the Night and right. I mean I just thought that's what sure. that's what everybody believes and yeah. But now I'm looking here and seeing like 1800s and stuff like this is. Yeah. So Schofield, you know, yeah, 18th century. And um, and, and so it's it, it can really be traced back to, the, you know, 300 years or so. Um, whereas articulated amillennialism goes as far back as Augustine. Um, so fourth century. Yeah. Um, now, that's something again, that that's something that. That's not a super strong argument. Right. I mean, um, but it is helpful historically to know that. Right, right. And, but a, a pre-mill to play devil's advocate would say, well, what everyone believed for all time is that justification was by works. And that turned out to be wrong. You know, so except for the people that didn't, there was always that, there was always that remnant. That's right. That's right. Okay, Steve. So when you were describing how the uh, believers are kind of grafted in at the second coming as a sub, kind of a subset of Israel. It seems like that might conflict somewhat with Paul's writings in the New Testament. Is that, is that right to think that there's maybe some conflicts in that? I, I believe that's right. Um, so with, let me come over to the whiteboard here. So when we think of world history and the creation of time, and then there's this point where, where time ends and it goes on into uh, the, the new heavens and new earth, you know, eternity future. And we think of God's activity in the world. Is his 
the way we would say it is that God, the redemptive historical activity of God is to create for himself one people made of every tribe, language, people, and nation. That plan began with Israel as a template, as a microcosm of what he would do broadly. So from the very beginning in Genesis 12, repeated in Genesis 15, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky, as numerous as the sand in the sea. And, uh, and then even in the Levitical laws, creating provisions for Gentiles to be grafted into the fold of the people of God. This, this you know, transcending ethnic Israel has always been in the redemptive plan of God throughout history. Um, coming into the Davidic kingdom and uh, all of the, you know, just look at the genealogies and the non-Jewish people that get mixed in with the coming of the Messiah. Come into Solomon and the grandeur of the temple and the queen of Sheba from another nation, another ethne coming into the Sol Solomon's temple and her breath is taken away at the beauty and wonder. Think of Jonah and God calling Jonah to go to Nineveh, a non-Jewish community, and preach repentance. And God saves them. And Jonah gets mad because they're not Jewish. And he's upset at God for rescuing these people, these Gentile sinners. You know, then it, you come into the New Testament, and it's the same thing. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the people of Israel, Jesus is continuously rebuking them because the, you know, the, the overturning of the money changing tables and all of that. Um, this was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. And instead, they're extorting the nations. They're charging them money. They're taking advantage of them. Um, it had all been flipped around, and that's why Jesus got mad. And then you come into Acts, and, you know, we're just tracing out the, uh, the redemptive themes here. Pentecost happens. Um, Jesus goes up. The Spirit comes down. All the nations are gathered. The Spirit is poured out on all flesh. People from every nation come to worship Jesus and, um, and get saved. And this gospel will be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. Go therefore into all nations. You see the, the mission of the church, Paul's own mission, beginning with ethnic Israel and ultimately being called beyond Israel into Gentiles. So it's, I think it's hard to see a, a, a hard stop with an insertion of a parenthetical church in just the flow of redemptive history. I think it was God's intention all along um, to gather for himself a people, a singular people, diversely identified by those from every tribe, language, people, and nation. So this is Ephesians uh, 3, right? That how the mystery was made known to me. Um, this mystery, Ephesians 3, 6, is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. And... Uh, to me, though I'm very the least, least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring delight for everyone. What is the plan of the mystery? Hidden for ages in God, who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. It doesn't sound like an afterthought. It sounds like this was God's plan from day one. And then going back a chapter, um, in, in, chapter, uh, in chapter 2, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh a dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, two being Gentile and Jew. 
It was God's intention all along not to write off Israel and abandon them and move on with a new plan as though God had this plan and it was going and it just kind of went downhill and God said, well, that didn't work. Forget that. Let's bring Jesus and we'll start this whole new thing and now we have the church. So in dispensationalism, in my view, it says this plan continued under the stream of redemptive history while the church really got the focus and the highlight church gets raptured then israel gets brought back and during the seven year tribulation is when they're restored and then ultimately finally you have this one new man but i think a better way to picture this is that all along the offer of salvation has been held out to israel the same way it is to all gentiles and that what god is doing now is he's, he's established for himself through Christ a true Israel, a true people of God, not identified by physical markers and covenantal rites and, and procedures, but defined by circumcision of the heart. So it's not that he's got a new plan, it's that Israel is now newly defined along the terms of faith in Christ. And that can be a Gentile who can have faith in Christ or it can be a Jew who has faith in Christ. But the point is, one new man. Does that answer your question? Sorry, I just get excited about that kind of stuff. So that's probably more than what you're looking for. But, okay. Delane? Um, let's do one more, and then we'll take a, like a five, ten minute potty break, and then we'll come back and look at some other things. Yeah. Delane? So when the second coming, that's after the rapture, and so the church is raptured out. Where are they going if Christ is coming back to reign and the Bible says to depart from the body is to be with the Lord? Where, are the, where is the church going? Where are they rapturing to? Yep, so they're, they're, with, they're in heaven with God, but then they come back to the earth for the millennium. Oh, okay, so they're with the ethnic Israel. Um, well, no, because ethnic Israel is still here. They're going through the tribulation. In the whole, which is seven years for God to gather Israel to himself during the tribulation. Um, many who believe will be killed and will be martyred. And so, the, you know, we saw in Revelation 20 the number of those who were beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and the word, who had not worshipped the beast or its image. The premillennialists will say all that is describing what's going on here in, during the seven-year great tribulation. So church is raptured up. Um, they're hanging out in heaven for seven years while Israel's being brought back to God. And then they all come down together for the millennium, reign for a thousand years. Satan is released. The remaining unbelievers and Satan have their last little hurrah, but God squashes them. And everybody rises and goes into the new heavens and new earth. Okay. I appreciate um, it. And I would add to that, um, on the historical pre-mill view... Um, you know, so what does a historical pre-mill person do with 1 Thessalonians 4.17? So historic pre-mill doesn't believe there's a rapture. So how are believers, those who are alive, will be caught up in the air with them, those who rise from the dead, and they will all together meet the Lord in the air. So where does that fit into a historical pre-mill view? So the, what's that? Well, it, you know, we, we all 
regardless of our view, we all have a way to answer all the questions, right? So everybody has an answer. And the, the question is how persuasive is it and how consistent is it with, with, with what all of scripture teaches? And of course, just to say it, everybody believes that their view is consistent with what the Bible teaches. So um, no, the way historic pre-mill answers it is, um, so like the way Wayne Grudem describes it is, um, we're, we're caught up with the Lord in the air and, uh, and then we come right back down, like in a matter of minutes. So we're caught up with the Lord in the air and just minutes, maybe an hour or two later, we come back down. So uh, to reign with Jesus for the millennium. So what he's saying is when it says we're caught up with the Lord in the air, it doesn't mean, it doesn't say we stay there forever. So there's nothing that excludes the possibility that after we're caught up, we just come right back um, to reign, reign on the earth with Jesus, who takes the throne in Jerusalem and reestablishes the temple and all of that. So under pre-mill, let's throw this question out there. Um, maybe you've heard of believers, you know, just really passionate about sending money to Jerusalem for the rebuilding of the temple. Um, Christians throwing parties and just being so excited in 1940 when, when uh, Israel became a nation because they saw like, oh my gosh, this is, it, it's a nation that the temple's coming back. I mean, once Israel becomes a nation, they're that much closer to the, the, the temple being established, which means we're that much closer to the end. And if Israel is a nation, it's got to be a nation first before Jesus can rule from it and rule the whole globe from it. So for a, a pre-mill person, um, the restoration of Israel as a nation in 1948, I might be getting that date wrong, uh, is very key, very, very key. And it would also explain why, um, you know, are sending money to Israel, and um, which is not to say, I'm not saying anything about politically supporting Israel, that's different, but the, the pre-mill person would see it in an eschatological framework, that this is how we move history and the world closer to this millennial reign. This is how we help God get the world ready for the second coming, um, because Jesus is coming back to Jerusalem to reign in the bodily from the temple. Um, so that is premillennialism in a very small nutshell. So we take five minutes um, and then we'll come back and look at uh, postmillennialism. All right.